Channing, and I'm Elise, and this is the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We focus on feminist interpretation of scriptures and follow the LDS Come Follow Me manual as a guide for study. We understand scriptures can be a tricky endeavor for readers, but we also believe sacred texts contain compelling examples of loving and liberating relationships with the divine, others, and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in exploring the problems and promises of sacred texts with imagination, critique, and celebration to reveal what we feel is the loving and liberating heart of scripture. While Mormonism, with its iconic floral foyer couches, is our background, we follow our faith and our God on the winding path of spirituality over institution and connection over condemnation. We are fellow wanderers, weavers, and doubters. If you found yourself feeling a little too faithful for some and not enough for others, welcome. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs. This podcast is funded by our listeners' generous donations. If you'd like to support our work, connect with us on Patreon or on our website at www.thefaithfulfeminist.com. Hi friends, welcome back. In this week's episode, we'll be covering Exodus chapters 7 through 17 for the dates March 28th through April 10th. And you'll notice that this is another two-in-one or two-week episode, and we're sorry that it's almost two episodes like this in a row. But one of the commitments that Elise and I made to each other and to you, our listeners, at the beginning of this year was to be more intentional in building in pleasure, play, and rest into the time around the podcast. This allows us time to focus on our friendship, spend time with our families, and nurture our own spiritual connections that in turn feed and support the work that we do here. One of us is going to be out of town on a family trip, and one of us will be celebrating a birthday and planting a garden. So we appreciate your understanding and your continued support. Our next episodes that we'll release after this one will be our Holy Week series, with the first daily episode released on Sunday, April 10th. Our past Holy Week series has been a long-time listener favorite, and we're excited to continue in the same spirit but with new content. We're thrilled to share what we've been working on with you. But for now, we'll first move our attention to the book of Exodus, focusing on chapters 7 through 13, which outline the plagues and punishments that God sent to Egypt for not allowing the Israelites to go free. After that, we'll move into chapters 14 through 17, which narrate the Israelites' dance to freedom and early miracles in the wilderness. In this episode, we'll be mainly focusing on the plagues, the children of Israel's exodus out of Egypt, and our girl Miriam. So let's dive in. Yay, 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 yay. So to start, the story of Exodus is a powerful one that has many implications and lessons for social justice and liberation practices today. We even see the Come Follow Me manual kind of tip its hat to this to this idea when it says, quote, When God's people have needed faith and courage, they have often turned to this account of Israel's miraculous deliverance. Similarly, in a chapter from the book Torah Queries by J. Michelson, they write, quote, The exodus from Egypt has symbolized the movement from servitude to freedom for generations. Whether for African-American slaves or for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender elders, the story resonates far beyond its Israelite particularity to any struggle for liberation, end quote. And one more quote from the father of Latin American liberation theology, Gustavo Gutierrez, who writes, quote, The Exodus experience is paradigmatic. 
it remains vital and contemporary due to the similar historical experience of the people of God, which the people of God undergo. But the true agents of this quest for unity are those who today are oppressed economically, politically, culturally, and struggle to become free, end quote. So just a few other voices echoing how important this story, this Exodus story is. And yet, I think that in this podcast episode, we want to be really careful in our reading of this story, especially as white women hosts of the podcast who hold much privilege like being cisgender and able-bodied and upper middle class. And so to all of our listeners who may hold similar privilege, we invite you to consider this question as you listen along. How can we celebrate the story of Exodus without making it about ourselves? Or, how does my role in the story of Exodus look more like that of Pharaoh and the Egyptians than that of maybe Miriam, Moses, or the children of Israel? Mm, I love those questions. And that's definitely a conversation that you and I have had off air in checking our privilege. And, you know, even though it's fun to play with the text and turn its pockets out and see what we can find when we maybe flip it upside down, sometimes I do notice, even in even in you and I, as we're going through and reading the text, that there can be maybe a temptation of over-identification with the like heroes of the story. And um, we've, we've covered this in so many episodes, but it can be a really powerful practice to read ourselves into the text as the oppressors, especially when, just like you said, we do hold so much privilege. And I definitely think that in this case, that um, can be a really powerful reading for, for people who hold a lot of privilege in the world. So thank you for naming that. Yes, absolutely. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about the move out of Egypt in a little bit. But even before we get there, what we see first is the plagues in chapters 7 through 13. Yeah, things get really wild. Chapter 7 just pretty much starts out right with a bang. Like the storytellers in these chapters waste no time in getting right to the heart of what the issue is. We see chapter 7 opening with Aaron and Moses going to Pharaoh and performing miracles in front of them. And Pharaoh also has wise men and sorcerers, and he has them do all of the same I don't know, I want to say tricks, but like perform all of the same miracles. And it kind of seems to be like this back and forth, like, oh, look what my can, what my God can do. And then on the other side, it's like, well, look what our gods can do. And it's just, it's kind of seems to be this back and forth, back and forth. And then at the end of chapter seven, we see the first plague or the first punishment come into play. And this is when Moses turns the river in Egypt into blood. The fish in the river die, and not only does the river itself turn into blood, but all of the water in all of Egypt, including water that's already been like gathered into urns, um, it all turns to blood. And the fish die, and it says that the river stink. So all of the remaining chapters, 8 through 13, outline outline the 10 plagues that God afflicts Egypt with in efforts to convince them to let the Israelites go. In chapter 8, we see God sending a plague of frogs, and these frogs come up out of the rivers and get into people's beds and their dough bowls and their kitchen. After the frogs invade the land, Pharaoh goes to Moses and says, 
okay, this is really bad. Please, please make it stop. And so Moses is like, okay. So he asks God to stop. So all the frogs die and they have to scoop up the frog carcasses and like they smell really, really bad. The text even says like, and the the text says that the land stink. After this, God sends lice to every person and to every animal. God sends swarms of flies. Um, God basically sends this plague to all of the livestock animals so they die. Then locusts come and kill everything. And then there's hail and fire happening at the same time. And just like all the plants die, all the animals die. And it's just really, really bad. And by the time that the locusts come, Pharaoh is like, okay, fine. Like, you guys, you can just go, like, get out of here. And God says to Moses, well, I have one more, one more plague, one more curse that I need to give to Egypt. And this is when we see the Passover instituted and God sends a curse throughout all of Egypt that kills the firstborn in every Egyptian family. And so at this point, uh, the Egyptians are more than happy to let the Israelites go. In fact, they send them with gold and jewels and linens to help them on their journey and just basically say like, wow, this has been awful. Just leave. And so, um, yeah, by the end of chapter 13, the Israelites are leaving Egypt. So we wanted to read um, the chapters about the plagues and the curses through an ecofeminist lens because Elise and I definitely saw through these chapters a lot of ecofeminist echoes of climate crisis and climate change. If we turn our attention to the plague where the river turns into blood, in the text, Aaron stretches out his hand and all the waters in Egypt turn to blood. Even the fish die here. And there are echoes of this same story or phenomena happening even today. So we want to share two modern examples of, and in the first example, it's about clothing dye in the water. And in the second example, it's about oil spills in the Amazon. So firstly, in an article from the CNN website, Haji Muhammad Abdus Salam speaks of his homeland in Savar, which is north of the capital of Bangladesh. He writes, quote, when I was young, there were no garment factories here. We used to grow crops and love to catch different kinds of fish. The atmosphere was very nice. The author of the article writes, the river beside him is now black like an ink stain. Abdus Salam said, waste from nearby garment factories and dye houses has polluted the water. There are no fish now, he said. The water is so polluted that our children and grandchildren cannot have the same experience, end quote. And from another article that we found on the World News website, it says, quote, An oil pipeline ruptured in Ecuador's Amazon region on January 28, 2022, spilling thousands of barrels of oil into the jungle. But downstream, communities who depend on the Amazon's Coca River are seeing the impact, even hundreds of miles away. The Coca River is one of the largest and most important tributaries in Ecuador. It feeds into the Napo River and eventually the Amazon. Everything is covered in oil. The river, the surface of the water, said Valerio Greffa, an indigenous Quechua leader who lives along the Coca River in the village of San Pablo. They continued, decades ago, this was the cleanest river. Now it's the most contaminated, the deadest river. It is such a shame, end quote. Alexandra Almeida, 
A biologist with the environmental group Acción Ecologica says these communities are in a very, very serious situation because they don't have access to the river water, so they can't fish and they can't fish there and they can't drink from it. End quote. In both of these examples, we can I think that we can see really clearly how the river of blood example is a plague for uh, the Egyptians during this time, but we can also see in both of these stories how garment factories and also oil spills have a similar effect on not just the rivers and the like wildlife population, but also on the people that live nearby and spend time drinking and fishing in the river. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And even if we move to the next plague, which is frogs, at first this seems really harmless, right? Like there's even a part of me that's like, a little bit giggly when I think about a plague of frogs because I'm like, they're just so cute. Like I think, yeah, I think like frogs are just kind of adorable and sweet. But then I think about like frogs everywhere, like frogs in my kitchen, frogs in my bread dough, frogs in my bed sheets, they become much less cute and a lot more annoying. And I think that I can kind of see or imagine some echoes of this in the frustration and disbelief around climate change as well. I know that there are people, at least in my life and in my social circles, that feel that conversations about climate change and maybe what they think are preemptive conservation efforts are just annoying. But what's really the case is these metaphorical frogs are the least of our worries if climate emergency goes unaddressed. I think generally the disbelief and doubt around climate crisis is shrinking, but one thing that's really especially alarming for me is to read to read books that comment on the limited time remaining to address the global climate crisis that were written in the late 1980s and to see in 2022 that these problems have gotten worse and not better. With the rivers of blood and with the frogs, we see in both of these cases um, in the text that the priests of Pharaoh are able to replicate this curse. And Elise and I were commenting with each other about how fascinating this is that they were able to kind of recreate this curse and actually add to the problem instead of fixing it. And I think in the same way, there are people who, even in our everyday life, are coming up with ideas that quote-unquote fix climate change without actually providing any real solutions. I think about the straw and plastic bag bans in California. Well, protections for the Bears Ears National Monument were revoked under the Trump administration. Every year, bees and other pollinators are dying, and yet homogenous GMO crops continue to be planted across the nation. I can go to a store and see on a package of paper towels or something that says, for every pack, a new tree is planted. All the while, deforestation continues worldwide. We see oil companies participating in green initiatives while simultaneously lobbying for more protections for oil in the U.S. And we see rich people, I found out this one today, we see rich people in Utah County trying to raise funds to build an island and a gated community on that island inside of the middle of Utah Lake and advertising it as a clean up Utah Lake initiative, which it is not. So with all these cases, and I could, I literally just like picked the top four off the top of my head. Unfortunately, we need real solutions that aren't that easy, but instead we need to put our focus right at the heart of the problem, 
We need resources poured into alternative energy, sustainable buildings, and what I've heard would be the most impactful is the repatriation of land to indigenous peoples who best know how to care for the land and its beings. We can try to conjure up creative solutions, or we can face the issue head on and do what those before us chose not to. As we move to another plague, the plague of lice, I think this is the moment that things can feel perhaps personally uncomfortable. At least that's the way it seems in the story. And and perhaps this is even the stage that most of us U.S. citizens are in. We are beginning to experience some effects of climate change, like hotter summers, warmer winters, drought in some areas and flooding in others, warming soils, releasing what were once dormant fungus into the air in some areas. And we also must remember still that other places around the globe have been experiencing true emergency status changes in their environments, which have gone ignored by the Western world. And this is also the point in the story when Pharaoh's priests can't replicate the curses. For example, in chapter 8, verse 18, it says, And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. And the magicians said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. This might also be the point when we begin to realize just how much time has been wasted in addressing climate change. And from there, we move to the flies and the boils. And at this point, the plagues become undeniable. They begin to get in the way of everyday life. People can't see because of the swarms of flies, and they can't move because the boils on their body are so painful. And for the most part, they're beginning to experience these changes as more than just mere annoyances. In these cases, the plagues are both an outward and an inward plague, happening outside their bodies and inside them. From The Guardian, and maybe you've seen this because this literally just happened a couple of days ago, um, The Guardian website on March 24th, 2022 wrote that, quote, microplastic pollution has been detected in human blood for the first time, with scientists finding the tiny particles in almost 80% of the people tested, end quote. Though the article states that the uncertainty of the effects of microplastic on human health, we know that humans have mistakenly considered themselves apart from and insulated from the environment for a long time. What we are seeing with these recent studies is that we are not immune to the effects of the Anthropocene. Finally, as we move to the plague of dying livestock, hail and fire, and locusts, with these three curses, the food sources of Egypt are systematically destroyed. We're not really sure what happens to the biblical Egyptians after this, but the outlook is not good. With soil depletion, deforestation, and the prevalence of GMO crops and toxic pesticide use alone, human food sources are either becoming increasingly difficult to maintain or are becoming incredibly toxic to both human and environment. When we neglect the health and sustainability of the environment, we neglect the health and sustainability of human life. Eventually, our actions will come full circle. We decide whether or not they are life-giving. And we see this full circle-ness coming in the curse, which kills the firstborn of every Egyptian family. In this way, the curses of Exodus illuminate that the harm we cause others will eventually be returned to us. The same goes for the goodness we do as well. Yeah. And I don't know about you, Elise, but I remember like going through seminary and even having lessons about the plagues in Exodus, and it really felt like very apocalyptic every single Mm -hmm. time. I remember one time going into seminary when we were doing the Hebrew Bible portion, and like there were 
like my seminary teacher had hung like plastic frogs and grasshoppers mm-hmm. from the ceiling and it just was like <laughs> it was just it was the wildest weirdest experience as a sophomore and i think I don't know if this is like a super common experience, but I definitely feel a lot of anxiety whenever uh, conversations go apocalyptic. And I want to offer a little bit of hope um, with that because I think even like we did today, like talking about the modern day similarities between, you know, the plagues that happened back then and what's happening now. I think that there is a lot of hope to be found and a lot of encouragement in knowing that things are not hopeless. I really like an Instagram post that came from 350.org, which is a nonprofit organization focused on fighting climate change. And this post read, it's warming. It's us. We're sure. It's bad. We can fix it. And I feel like that last part is the one that matters so much. I feel like we often get stuck in the hopelessness and find ourselves wading through the doom and gloom of climate change. But we can also choose to move from there too. And so some questions may And so a question maybe we can ask ourselves is, what calls to you? What calls to me? How do I want to contribute to reducing climate change in the spheres that I'm able to influence? Maybe you'll want to plant a pollinator garden. Maybe incorporate native plants into your landscaping. Maybe you'll want to purchase produce directly from your local organic farmers. Maybe you want to reserve a small space in your yard that goes untouched. I really love wearethearc.org because they are committed to re-educating the public about untouched wild spaces and cultivating them in our own backyards to reintroduce biodiversity by creating what they call arcs, which are small portions of land built around acts of restorative kindness. Maybe you want to reduce your energy usage in your home. Or vote in politicians with green ethics and vote out policies which contribute to local environmental harm. There are a million small ways to create so much good. And while climate change is a systemic problem that cannot be wholly solved by individual efforts alone, every drop in the bucket matters. So as we move from exploring an eco-feminist lens around the plagues of Egypt and the Exodus, we want to move into a more social justice-oriented lens and some conversations around the implications that these chapters have um, in social justice and liberation theologies. Yeah, I think some of the first few times I was really studying the story of Exodus, like a few years ago, I think I had some uncomfortable questions come up for me and... Some of them were like, how do I make sense of all of the violence in these chapters? And I was tempted to ask myself, why didn't God spare the Egyptians? Or why didn't God like spare their firstborn kids in every single family, right? It it gets really violent. But it also has already been violent for many, many years. And I think what I've learned is that we might say that God acted violently because in this situation, there was no other path. God tried to be peaceful by having Moses and Aaron petition Pharaoh and ask Pharaoh to let the Israelites go free. I mean, the Pharaoh and the Egyptians had 10 plagues worth of opportunities to make the right decision and many more opportunities even before the plagues, even before it came to the plagues. So perhaps this is a story about a God to whom oppression is never justifiable, right? Perhaps this is a story about a God where who believes that injustice is never tolerable. We see a story of God who reminds us that freedom is an intimate value and 
It's a fundamental part of, of what it means to be human, so much so that when freedom is taken or lost or obscured, it requires liberation at any price. Jose Severino Corrado writes, quote, The God of peace is first of all the God of justice and freedom. Peace is sinful when it serves to maintain injustice and dependence. End quote. And I really love seeing this type of God show up here because it reminds me that God always sides with the oppressed and always has the potential to truly show up in history for the cause of freedom and liberation, no matter the cost. And I also like the line from Corrado because if God and if God and Moses and Aaron continue continued to try and be nice or try and keep the peace, then the children of Israel would continue to be enslaved. And so I like the reminder here that peace is a sin when it serves to maintain injustice and dependence or oppression. Gustavo Gutierrez also reminds us that, quote, the liberation of Israel is a political action. It is the breaking away from a situation of despoliation and misery and the beginning of the construction of a just and comradely society, end quote. Another thing I've been thinking of that Channing and I have spoken about is that God might show up differently depending on whose perspective you read God from, right? So for example, for the children of Israel, in their perspective, God was probably taking a really long time. Yeah. And when things got even more violent for the children of Israel, we hear the Israelites cry out against Moses and God saying, why are you making things worse for us? It would have almost been better if you had left us in Egypt. And then perhaps for the Pharaoh, from Pharaoh's perspective, maybe God is non-existent and merely able to be written off as magicians or something. And maybe for Moses, God feels really too, like way too demanding, asking and expecting more of Moses than he thinks he's capable of. And I think with each of these perspectives, I hope that it might cause us to ask, what does my God look like? And how might my God look more like an oppressor than a liberator to those on the margins? And how can I change that? One of the other thoughts that I've been having about this story is thinking about the other people in Egypt, right? Like the everyday Egyptians that also have frogs in their bedsheets and lice in their hair and are suffering the effects of these these plagues and these curses. And I I notice a part of me reading this story that I'm like, oh, well, they didn't do anything. Like, why, why do they have to suffer alongside Pharaoh, who is singled out in the text for having a hard heart and just choosing not to let the Israelites go? And, you know, I brought this up with Elise. And I was like, why I'm like, what, what could, what interpretation could we offer here? What's sticking out to you about this story? And as we kind of talked through it and discussed it, I was really thinking about my, my own privilege in the system of white supremacy and thinking about how, even though I may not intentionally harm others with my biases, I still make choices, maybe conscious or unconscious 
that hurt and harm others. And I'm still responsible and I'm still accountable for those. And so as I am reading the story about Exodus and remembering that there are everyday people who are experiencing the plagues alongside, you know, Pharaoh and Pharaoh's magicians and sorcerers, the people who we think are primarily responsible. I also remember, just like Elise said, that there were chance there was chance after chance after chance and opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for even these everyday Egyptians to stand up and make a choice to not oppress the Israelites, to not enslave the Israelites. And yet still, they chose at some level to participate in the role of oppressor and enslaver. And so I'm trying to be really conscious of of that and my own participation in systems that benefit me. And it makes me uncomfortable. But one of the questions that I've been asking myself as I've kind of sat with the story this week is how many times do we say that we're listening for God in the voices of the oppressed and yet still continue to harden our hearts? How many times do we, like Pharaoh, ask for the shame and the guilt that we experience as oppressors to be lifted and expect the people who we have oppressed to do the lifting, to entreat God on our behalf to keep us comfortable? How many times do we, as white women, say to women of color, entreat on my behalf? Can't you understand where I'm coming from? See how I'm hurting too? Maybe even more sinisterly, perhaps we as white women might say, well, women of color, when you stand up and speak out against your own oppression, it hurts me. See how hard I'm trying? Can't you understand why I disagree? And I think there's this temptation to read ourselves into the heroes or the liberated in this story, but in this case... I feel like as a woman, as a white woman with privilege, I have to ask myself, when do I, like Pharaoh, sin yet more? How can I say to myself, I'll read books and watch movies with strong black leads, but when it comes to talk of police and prison abolition, do I harden my heart? Do I ask BIPOC women to tell me about their pain and then after they do, brush it off and ignore it? And you know, I'm just feeling incredibly held accountable by this text. And I also think about our LGBTQ members too. When we ask them, hey, pray to God about your gender and your sexual orientation, only to ignore them when they do that and they discover their own belovedness. How do we as members continue to sin yet more and harden our hearts and dig our heels in on grounds of gender essentialism, the refusal to acknowledge and use preferred pronouns, and demand that LGBTQ folks continue to carry the burden of our ignorance until it becomes too heavy to bear. I feel like I have to ask myself, how many times do I harden my own heart toward prophets from the margins because the message they share is one that I'm not only challenged by, but that requires me to do something about it? Mm -hmm. And so as I'm going through, and Elise and I have had this conversation together, as we're going through and reading this section in Exodus, I have to remember What role do I see myself reflected in this story and how is it calling me to be more aware and actually take action? 
And one of the things that we wanted to acknowledge is that we've spent a lot of time talking about the Egyptian experience in this Exodus section, but the reason why this story is continually referenced throughout the Hebrew Bible, throughout the New Testament, throughout the Book of Mormon is because this is a legacy of love from the divine for their children, for the Israelites. And even though we read ourselves into this story, um, especially in the position and the role of the Egyptians, the story is an Israelite story of love and celebration of them and their belovedness from God. And so we recognize that this story is one that calls us to accountability and action always in favor of the oppressed, no matter what our own experience of the story might be. After their exodus out of Egypt, and after they've crossed the Red Sea, and after the Egyptians have all drowned, we finally see Miriam show up again in chapter 15. And if you remember from our episode last, last week, we first met Miriam at the waters of the riverside, watching over her brother, little baby Moses, in his little baby basket, floating down the river. And so now we see her here again, surrounded by water, singing and dancing as she rejoices with her people in their deliverance. A lot of the things that we want to share about Miriam come from Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney's book, Womanist Midrash. About Miriam, Gaffney writes that, quote, Miriam is the mother of the women prophets in the Hebrew scriptures. She's the first woman in the canon identified as a prophet, and she's named in more biblical books than any other woman, including Eve, Sarah, and Rebecca. Miriam's name has two meanings. In Hebrew, it means bitter water woman, and in Egyptian, it means beloved. Gaffney writes that Miriam was undoubt undoubtedly the beloved of her family, her people, and her God, and she also tasted the bitter waters of slavery. In addition, she is known in rabbinic tradition for providing water for her people. Based on the narrative of her death, in which there ceased to be water for the people as soon as she dies. In all of these chapters of Exodus, we really only see Miriam as a child at first, and then we see her as like a way older woman. And if Miriam is the eldest of the three siblings, right, if Miriam is oldest and then we have Aaron as second eldest and then Moses as the youngest, then Miriam is at least like 85 or more likely even closer to 90 years old when she leads her people across the Red Sea to freedom from slavery. It also seems that although she had few choices in her life because of the enslavement of her people, Miriam did seem to choose not to marry and not to give birth. Speaking of her prophethood, Gaffney writes, quote, there is no indication when Miriam begins her prophethood, nor any reason to limit it to her senior years. The rabbinic literature suggests Miriam's prophecy began as a child. And in her own Midrashic reading, Gaffney suggests that while Moses was in hiding, building a new life with no intent of his own return to his people and no inkling that God would call him and send him back home, Miriam was the people's prophet. She was their prophet. Whether Moses was 20 or even 30 when he fled, decades passed before his return to the Pharaoh's court. Gaffney continues, quote, In my sanctified imagination, I see Miriam as the pastor for her people in Egyptian slavery. Her preaching and teaching reminded them that God was real and did hear their prayers. No matter how many generations it would take, God would deliver them, end quote. Mm. And I just want to take a moment to appreciate this imaginative and 
like reclamatory sketch that Gaffney offers here. Look how Miriam comes alive so much more than we see her written written out in a text. I can imagine her as an elder among her people, a wise one who's not separate from her people, but embedded in their everyday lives. She, some, she is someone who knows their burdens because she also bears them. And yet, she keeps the people going. She reminds them of a God who keeps their promises. And I can also imagine the people adoring her and honoring her and absolutely loving her. Uh, Dr. Reverend Will Gaffney is such a powerhouse. I love her writing. I especially love this quote too um, from her book. She writes, quote, Moses and the Israelites sing Miriam's song, the song of the sea at the water's edge. But the people wouldn't move. They wouldn't walk through the waters. So Miriam took a small hand drum. I know that the Bible say a tambourine in Exodus 15, and that's a translation error. It was a tambourine-shaped drum without the metal piece. She took a drum in her hand and led the people through the water, singing her song. First, she sang by herself and danced by herself. Moses was on the side, holding his arms in the air. He didn't lead the people through the water. The prophet Miriam led her people to freedom, beginning with the sisters. The women joined Miriam in the song of the sea and dance of deliverance. Leading her people through the dangerous waters, Miriam was the first Israelite to set foot on the other side, end quote. We really feel that there's something here to be said about collaboration. For example, on the First Name Basis podcast, Jasmine asked us what role men play in the feminist movement. And perhaps we wonder if this story is a really good demonstration. We can imagine men using their power to keep the women in your lives and your people safe, allowing women to lead while you shore up the back of the group. Listen to our words and our songs, and when you hear us cry out, sing, know that it is not only an invitation to the women, but to you too. Men, it's not only an invitation, but a demand. We need your voices alongside ours. We also see Gaffney imagining Miriam's song as a call and response song. And we love the inclusion of the dance of deliverance with both voices and bodies as necessary to full-bodied rejoicing. In an article titled, Why the Miriam Story Stops, by Rishay Groner, the author talks about her initial hesitation toward Miriam and her preference for Moses as the powerful, mighty prophet. This was until Rishé felt the divine work within them through dance. Groner writes, quote, I began a conscious dance practice, which soon became an obsession as I attended classes and workshops. And soon I brought my practice everywhere I went, from Shabbat services to nightclub dance floors. I learned to dance without thought or fear and simply follow the movements of the spirit that moved through me. I discovered that my body was a trove of ancient wisdom and forgotten traumas, suppressed dreams, and latent powers that I could release through movement and finally feel free. The thump of the drumbeat I had previously chased in front of DJ booths I found in the vibration that ran through my arms and down my chest, palms slapping the djembe to the rhythm of my soul, even when my hands couldn't keep up. And as I slowly healed, I felt my mind, body, and spirit expand. 
I felt the anxiety of my Jewish womanhood release from the persistent knot that lived in my solar plexus, and the shame of my moving hips dissipate into a swirling wind of creativity and self-expression. I was lighter on my feet and firmer in my speech, and more empathetic, more connected with the world around me. And as I recalled the tambourines hanging on the wall, I wondered if maybe Miriam knew the secret after all. Perhaps she truly did hold the keys to redemption in her lady dance, end quote. I love, love, love this passage and this personal experience that the author shares here because it truly embodies the energy that's present in the story of Miriam. What would it look like if we trusted our own bodies and our voices to lead us to the land of milk and honey that's been promised to us by our God? So while Miriam is kind of vividly present in this section of the text, I just want us to make sure we don't forget that she's also present throughout the wanderings in the wilderness, even if she's not mentioned. She is there when the people cried out for food and water, and perhaps they cried to her first, asking her to petition God. After all of our study this week, I know that both Channing and I have a much greater appreciation for Miriam, especially after learning more about what her life might have looked like. We see her as a wise woman, committed to her people, communing with her God, celebrating in her body, and moving with the waters toward liberation. Mm, I love that. And perhaps, I don't know, maybe some of our listeners can take some lessons from Miriam. Maybe exploring creative ways of worshiping. What would it feel like to dance in your body, or sing a song of the sea, or dance a dance of deliverance, Or, I don't know, find pleasure and play and just experience what it might be like to lean into the creative powers of the body. And, oh, Miriam's so cool. I really, really just so enjoyed learning from her this week. The remainder of this, the remainder of the chapters for these sections, we find Moses leading the Israelites into the wilderness. They find water. Um, water which is bitter, that Moses and God then turn sweet. Um, Manna and quail are delivered from heaven, and just lots of miracles are happening at this point. So we really encourage you to go through, read the text for this week. Um, I don't do this very often because usually the Come Follow Me manual and I are hardly ever in agreement, but in this case, these two sections is a rare exception. I actually think that the manual does a really good job outlining the focus for the chapters this week. Um, So I'm just excited. And we're, yeah, we really are just so excited to share these chapters, share our perspectives, and we would be interested to hear also what you find as you go through and explore. So hang in there. We'll see you in a couple of weeks for our Holy Week series. And until then, we love you. Thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We know your time and space is sacred, and we are so grateful to have spent ours with you. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so happy if you left us a loving rating on iTunes and Spotify so other seekers can find us. Financial donations support the many hours of research, work, and devotion to each episode, as well as the everyday costs of creating and publishing the podcast. You can support us on Patreon or through a simple Venmo donation and help us create a world where creators, artists, activists, and beauty makers are valued and paid for their labor. Find us on those platforms and on Instagram as The Faithful Feminists. 
We are deeply grateful for your kindness and encouragement. We love you so much, and we hope to spend more time with you again soon. Bye, friends. Thank you.